and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And in this episode, we're continuing the book The Search for Captain Slocum by Waltus Magnus Teller. We're on the 11th chapter, and this is the ninth part of the reading. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to help support the podcast, or you can check out the Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week, or of course, the Mariner YouTube channel where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos, and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. Chapter 11. Then was the time to uncover my head, for I sailed alone with God. Slocum was alone on the unbroken ocean. Cold storms and hazardous rocks were behind him. Summer was ahead. Shaking out a reef now and setting the whole jib, he pressed on, hopefully, for Robinson Crusoe's island. A fair-weather seas, which washed over the sloop and the captain, also washed away old regrets. Roaring seas had turned to gossiping waves that rippled and pattered against her sides as she rolled among them, delighted with their story. Fifteen days out from Cape Pillar, he made Juan Fernandez right ahead. It was some sixty years earlier that Dana, aboard the brig Pilgrim, had rounded the horn, and made for the same historic island. At daylight, he wrote, we saw the island of Juan Fernandez directly ahead, rising like a deep blue cloud out of the sea. We were then probably nearly 70 miles from it. I shall never forget the peculiar sensation which I experienced on finding myself once more surrounded by land, feeling the night breeze coming from offshore and hearing the frogs and crickets. Slocum, after navigating alone in his smaller and less lofty vessel, wrote, the blue hills of Juan Fernandez, high among the clouds, could be seen about thirty miles off. A thousand emotions thrilled me when I saw the island, and I bowed my head to the deck. We may mock the Oriental Salaam, but for my part I could find no other way of expressing myself. If a parallel can be found in the literature of the sea to Slocum's response to Juan Fernandez, his first encounter with the islanders is unique. The courtly captain welcomed them on board with coffee and doughnuts. The taste of the fat on the latter created a sensation. In the diet of the islanders, there was no food fatter than goat, and a goat is, at best, a lean creature. By evening of the first day, Slocum had taught the inhabitants how to fry doughnuts and buns. They were so benighted, he said later, they'd never seen a doughnut in their lives. Then he sold his tallow as fast as he could weigh it out. I did not charge a high price, he wrote, but the ancient and curious coins I got in payment I sold afterwards to antiquarians for more than their face value. In this way, I made a reasonable profit. I brought away money of all denominations, and nearly all there was, so far as I could find out. Slocum found Juan Fernandez a lovely spot. He stayed ten days. There was nothing to hurry for, and besides, he never was in a hurry. One of the pleasantest days of the whole trip, he thought, was spent with the children of the place, gathering wild fruit for the long voyage across the Pacific. I got some nice quinces on Robinson Crusoe's island, and when I left, I put them into preserves as I sailed along, the combination captain, cook and crew explained later. He walked to the top of the mountain where Alexander Selkirk had had his lookout, and he wondered why the Englishman had never left the blessed island. While there, Slocum feasted on many things, but nothing was sweeter to him than the sight of the home and the very cave where Selkirk, Robinson Crusoe's prototype, had lived. 
The affinity between the fictional Robinson and the actual Joshua intrigued him. At times, the histories of both seem equally unreal. He left Juan Fernandez on the 5th of May, bearing away to the north. He passed the island of St. Felix and then suddenly picked up the trade winds. They blew hard and the spray under reefs sped westward with a bone in her mouth. Day after day, Slocum sailed and marked his position on his chart, more by intuition, he thought, than by calculation. For a whole month the spray held her course, and in all that time she carried no light. The sun every morning came up astern, every evening it went down ahead. I wished for no other compass to guide me, he wrote. For these were true, if I doubted my reckoning after a long time at sea, I verified it by reading the clock aloft made by the great architect, and it was right. Slocum did not, of course, stand all that time at the helm. To do so would have been impossible. Instead, he sat below reading. His books were always his friends, he said, or mending his clothes. He would cook his meals and eat them in peace. He did not smoke and, though not a teetotaler, drank very little. On the 43rd day out from Juan Fernandez, the solo navigator sighted Nukahiva, the lofty southernmost island of the Marqueses. But even after that long time at sea, he did not haul in for a landing. The days had been going so pleasantly that he decided to press on for Samoa, where he wished to make a personal call. He wanted to pay his respects to the widow of one of his favourite authors. My diet on those long passages, he wrote in Sailing Alone, usually consisted of potatoes and salt cod and biscuits, which I made two or three times a week. I had always plenty of coffee, tea, sugar and flour. But some years later, when discussing the question of how he managed his meals, he gave a more detailed account. There is a great chance for missionary work in cooking, he told an admiring caller, who was also a Massachusetts man and may have understood the righteousness of New England dishes. All the ports and countries the ex-merchant captain had visited had influenced his tastes, not at all. He steadfastly rejected all interests, not really his, all the fads and fashions one catches from others. Wherever he sailed, he took himself with him. When I started on the voyage, he said, I laid in two barrels of ship's bread, or pilot bread as it is sometimes called. In appearance this bread is like a large, thick cracker of rather coarse quality. There's no nonsense about it, though. It was made for keeps. It isn't fine and white like the crackers most people like to buy. You could eat a bushel basket full of those and get no substance. But this old-fashioned hard bread is a kind of whole wheat. My two barrels full lasted me the voyage through. I put them up in tin cans while they were dry and crisp, and I sealed the cans with solder, so the bread was as good three years old as it was new. I used to soak my hardtack and make bread pudding of the very nicest kind, and it had strength and nourishment too. It was something that would stand by you. I soaked the bread about six hours to get it thoroughly soft, then added sugar, butter, milk and raisins, put it on my lamp stove, and in a few minutes it was done. My stores included baking powder, salt, pepper and mustard, yes, and curry, I mustn't forget that. Curry powder is great stuff aboard a vessel. It was just what I needed to give the final touch to my venison stews that I made out of the salt beef and salt pork I carried along. Besides those meats, I had ham and dried codfish. The fish wasn't any of those little tomcods, skinned and bleached and tasteless that most people fancy, but big fellows, thick as a board and broad as a side of sole leather. Very few persons know how to treat a salt codfish properly. 
To freshen it, they let it stand in water half a day or more, very likely, and it may be use several waters. That takes all the goodness out. You can get rid of the extra salt just as effectively and without hurting the fish by picking it to pieces and washing it with your hands, just shaking it up and down in the water. Then put it right into the pot and boil for 15 minutes. When you get it ready for the table, add butter and pepper and chop a hard-boiled egg and put on top. You take codfish cooked that way and I want to set down prepared to hoist in a meal of it and all I want besides is potatoes, coffee and bread and butter. Slocum did not bother to fish on the voyage but in addition to the Boston salt cod he did have fresh fish anyway. In the tropical waters where he sailed most of the time there were fish that came aboard on their own. Ah, such breakfast as I used to have, he recalled when back in New England. Often I'd get up in the morning and find a dozen flying fish on the deck and sometimes they'd get down the forescuttle right alongside the frying pan. He explained how he made his soda bread and the biscuits he was so fond of and when it was time for a mug up he knew just how he wanted his coffee. I ground my own coffee. That's the only way to have it good. Ground coffee isn't worth as much by a great deal if you've let it stand for a day. Add your hot water and serve at once. You mustn't boil it. The milk the captain used was condensed but unsweetened. He called it evaporated cream. When he laid in a supply of butter, he would fill all his tumblers and mugs with it, spread a thin layer of salt on top and then tie a bit of muslin over that. The butter would then be placed in what he called a strong pickle. Butter in brine like that, the captain said, will keep as long as you want. As for eggs, the captain said he had more of them than one could imagine. He kept them by immersing them in hot water for a minute. That hermetically sealed the pores, he explained, and they would be all right for a good many weeks, even in a very hot climate. Best of all were the potatoes, that highly prized sailor's luxury. Yankee that he was, one picture Slocum eating them three times a day. My potatoes were usually delicious, he said. I never got up those frothy varieties they call creamed potatoes, no sir. I advocate cooking the potatoes and bringing them to the table with their jackets on unless they throw them off themselves in the process of cooking. That's the natural way, and that's the only way to get their full virtues. On the 16th of July, at noon, Slocum dropped anchor at Apia, in the kingdom of Samoa. Now he had been 73 days at sea alone, without making port. But even after that extremely long time, he did not go ashore at once. Instead, he spread an awning, and sat in its shade, listening to the voices of Samoan men and women, to the musical tones drifting to him across the harbour. Presently, three young women paddled a canoe alongside. Talofa Lee, love to you, chief, they hailed, and looked at the Yankee's flag. Skun Komeleki, one of the sweet crew inquired. The captain of the spray returned the greeting, love to you, before replying, yes. There was a further exchange of courtesies. Why had he come that long distance? To hear you ladies sing, said the knight-errant from New England. Then, wrote Slocum, they all cried, Oh, Tealofa Lee, and sang on. Their voices filled the air with music that rolled across to the grove of tall palms on the other side of the harbour and back. Fanny Stevenson came down next day to greet the captain who had sailed in her honour so many weeks alone. She invited him to Vailima, the Stevenson's struggling tropical plantation. When he arrived, he was asked to sit at the desk of the writer he had lately been reading, but he could not bring himself to do it. Before he left, Mrs. Stevenson gave him four volumes of sailing directories, which, she said, had been read many times by Robert Lewis. She inscribed them, 
to the sort of seafaring man that he, our alas, liked above all others. Fanny Stevenson had the spirit of a frontier wife, and Slocum admired her, for two reasons especially. First, she had shared many voyages with her husband in small boats among the Pacific Islands. When she spoke with the captain of the similarity of tastes between herself and her husband, and how much that had meant, Slocum knew what she was talking about. Second, he cherished that bright woman because she did not ask if the voyage would pay. Her kindly eyes were full of understanding as she listened to him. In fact, Slocum noted that the further he sailed from the centre of civilization, did he mean Boston, the less he heard of what would and would not pay. If the captain was a trader, and he was, he was also a poet-philosophizer, who could delight in a Samoan chief who said, Dollar, dollar, white man, no, only dollar. On the tree there is fruit, let the days go by, why should we mourn over that? There are millions of days coming, the breadfruit is yellow in the sun. The chief, Slocum wrote, might have been taken for a great scholar or statesman, the least assuming of the men I met on the voyage. Before Slocum left the islands, he sold the last of his tallow to a German soap boiler, to Lula, a sort of Queen of the May, brought him a bottle of coconut oil for his hair, a farewell present, which another man might have regarded as coming late. The point of the joke is easily missed when one looks at a photo of the captain with his hat on, and when he called on her the last time, Mrs. Stevenson gave him a couple of bamboo trees. Life in Summerland, Samoa, was a poem, as Slocum noted. For food, the islanders have only to put out their hand. There were the hospitable natives, the beverage ava to be drunk from a coconut shell, the laughing tapo girls dressed in cloth made of the bark of the mulberry tree, diving from the stern of the spray. Nothing could have been more delightfully simple. Some men would have lingered long, some forever, but Slocum stayed only a month. He still had many miles to go. On the 26th of August, 1896, the spray stood out of the harbour. After such happy days, departure was a lonesome thing, and the captain resorted at once to the old remedy, making himself as busy as possible. He crowded on sail. He steered for lovely Australia, with its many memories of 25 years before. Virginia's people were waiting to welcome him. But again, not a word of personal concerns got into the book. He said only that Australia was not a strange land to him, and so he ploughed on through another long passage at sea, almost a month and a half this time, mostly through storms and gales. Chapter 12 There was little to report on this part of the voyage, except changeable winds and rough seas. Almost a year and a half had passed since Slocum set sail. He had overcome the false start made to the eastward, and now was halfway around the world. At that point, what he had done no other sailor known to history had done before. News of the record-breaking Boston-to-Boston voyage was gathering momentum. It overtook and preceded the spray to Australia. In those days, the Australian papers, reflecting the pioneer outlook of the people in the new old land, usually took a critical, even hostile view of a stranger reaching their shores. No favours were sought, and none were given, but an exception was made of Slocum. They responded to him. They welcomed him as one of their own. When... The pilot of the Sydney Daling Shipping News heard that Slocum, coming from Samoa, had made the Australian seaboard at Newcastle in a boat no bigger than a typical Sydney Harbour sloop, he burst into irrepressible song. Hear the song of Skipper Slocum, best afloat. 
This is not a Yankee fairy anecdote, but the plain unvarnished story of a seaman bold and hoary who set out in search of glory in a boat. All alone he sailed from Boston one fine day in a swagger little lugger called the Spray, bound to cross the broad Atlantic, true a most peculiar antic, even though the gales were frantic every day. All's well, however, that ends well, they say, which applies to Skipper Slocum and the Spray. Therefore let us sing their praises, like we do all other crazes, in a manner which amazes. Hip, hip, hooray! It was not only that, to Australians, the New England skipper was of kindred spirit and stuff, but as a native of Nova Scotia, he was a true-born British brother, and he had the British heart of oak, something the Sydney Morning Herald could appreciate. No doubt the daring exploits of Captain Joshua Slocum are unique, and he is not likely to have many imitators, but of admirers and sympathisers there are legion, and this could hardly be the case if the ideal were not still at the long last and in the deep inner heart of humanity a more powerful motive than the real, if adventure and danger, now as formerly, were not regarded as finer qualities than comfort and ease. If that were not really so, those gallant voyagers who make such persistent efforts to reach the North Pole would be regarded as hopeless lunatics. Stanley would probably have been set down as a monomaniac with a partiality for African wanderings, and as for Captain Slocum, well... Captain Slocum would have to be placed in a special class of derangement by himself. But as we know, this is not the attitude of the world at all. Captain Slocum is fated by British squadrons and hailed everywhere as a worthy descendant of an illustrious line of sea kings. And so probably it will be to the end of time. The highest intellectual development is not likely ever to lessen the delight which we all naturally feel in stirring action, in worthy deeds worthily carried to an end. In the voyage of the spray, we see acute and thoughtful intelligence permeating the requisite courage of the navigator. It proves that two conspicuously British qualities, method and adventure, are still active, and that a man, if he have a strong purpose and a strong heart, may live to himself for twelve months or so in a cockle shell on the storm-tossed seas, even in these days of overpowering luxury. While Slocum rested at Newcastle, a ghost of his former merchantman's career suddenly came to life. Henry A. Slater, former second officer of the Northern Light, was living in Sydney and had been for some time. An ex-convict when Slocum had signed him on years ago, Slater was now an ex-constable. He had served the colony in the Darlinghurst police and, in a scuffle with burglars, had been slugged with a jimmy, shot twice and seriously wounded. Later, at the trial in which the burglars were acquitted, Slater referred to his treatment on the Northern Light as proof of his powers of physical endurance. Following this, he was appointed doorkeeper or messenger or porter, he has been described as all three, at the works department. When Slater heard his one-time commander had docked at Newcastle and soon would be coming to Sydney, he went to work. He addressed public meetings in which he accused the captain of vile and pitiless practices when the two had been shipmates 13 years before. He gave, in his own words, his story to the Daily Telegraph. In reading it here, remember that Slater, in 1896, was describing events which had happened, if at all, at a time and place long past. In the year 1883, I signed articles as second mate of the ship Northern Light, then under the command of Captain Joshua Slocum, at Port Elizabeth, South Africa. 
In the course of conversation, the captain told me that he had a very mutinous crew, and that as the other officers were afraid of the men, he wanted an officer of my stamp to keep them in order. He gave me to understand that I was to be a regular bucko or bully on board. Shortly after I had come on board the next morning, I heard Mrs. Slocum, the captain's wife, scream, and running to the gangway, found that one of her children had fallen overboard. I jumped over after the child, as also did a man in my watch named Hansen, and succeeded in saving the child, and bringing it safely on board. The harbour, I may state, is infested by sharks. Mrs. Slocum was effusive in her thanks, but the captain never mentioned a word about the matter. All went smoothly until the day before we started on the voyage to New York, whither we were bound. The captain and first mate being ashore, I was in charge of the ship. I told the third mate, Mr. Quaker, to do a job with some of the crew forward. Shortly afterwards, I heard a row, and going forward saw Mr. Quaker unmercifully beating one of the crew. I remonstrated with him, whereupon he answered me in a very insulting manner, and said that my time would come when we got to sea. I ordered him to his cabin, when he began to use most disgusting language, and on his way aft kicked a boy whom he passed, saying at the time that he was one of my favourites. I was so incensed that I gave him a thorough thrashing. The captain and mate came on board a little later, and Mr. Quaker was for some time closeted with Slocum. Some days after we had sailed from Port Elizabeth, Captain Slocum came to me and asked me when I was going to start on the crew, explaining that I had said that I would play the deuce with the men when we got to sea. I intimated that I was not prepared to beat and ill-treat the men for his satisfaction, as I found them good seamen and respectful and obedient. I also warned him that if he ill-treated any of the men, I would be a witness against him. He went away, muttering to himself. About a fortnight after leaving port, the captain came up while I was directing a job on the mizzenmast and found fault with the work. I pointed out that I was competent to do the work and had satisfactorily superintended the same work on the foremast. He had a sheaf knife in his hand and he rushed over and struck at me. I caught his hand, twisted the knife out of his grasp and threw it overboard. He then went below. That evening I slipped and fell, fracturing my right ribs, and the next day called the captain and told him that I would have to lay up. He replied that he would have no loafing on his ship and that he would disrate me, and ordered me forward to the forecastle. I told him that he dared not disrate me, when suddenly he rushed at me, knocked me down, and kicked me about the face and head. I was carried forward by the other officers and placed in a berth in the forecastle. The next morning, the captain, first mate and third mates, carpenter and boatswain, dragged me on deck, and the captain spat at me and struck me in the face with a belaying pin. I managed to crawl back to the forecastle and then fainted, when I woke up in the evening, the men held a consultation and agreed that they would not stand by and see me ill-treated in the manner I had been. The men began arming themselves and sharpening their knives, but I begged of them not to interfere as the officers were armed, and I feared that there would be bloodshed. I entreated them not to interfere with the captain and officers, pointing out that they would be severely punished as mutineers if they did, and I would be charged as the ringleader. At first they would not listen, but eventually I got them to promise not to interfere, whatever happened, but to take note of everything, taking day, date and time, so that when we reached port we could have justice meted out to us. The next morning the captain and officers and carpenter and boatswain came forward armed with revolvers and cutlasses and handcuffed my hands behind my back. They then threw me down the half-deck and kept me there all day without food or water. 
About midnight, I rested my hands free and crawled on deck and into the mate's cabin, where I secured a revolver. After deliberating for some time, I threw the revolver overboard and went forward and lay down. About eight o'clock the following morning, the carpenter came to the forecastle and nailed up one of the doors and the shutter. Then the captain and his officers and petty officers came forward and ordered all the men on deck. The officers then began to fire their revolvers into the forecastle. Fortunately, I was not struck by any of the bullets. After a time, the mate, Mitchell, called upon me to surrender. He was afraid to enter the forecastle for some time, but at last came in when I told him that I was unarmed. He told me that the trouble would blow over and that he would see me reinstated as second mate. I got up, and he helped me to the door. When I got out on deck, I was seized from behind, knocked down, and two pairs of handcuffs were put on my wrists. I was then dragged aft to the poop, where shackles were put on my ankles. A chain was then placed round my throat, crossed behind my neck, wound around my body under my arms, down through the handcuffs, down through my legs, then up to the back of my neck and made fast. Then a length of chain was made fast to the shackles on my ankles, and the whole lot of chain riveted together. I had then over 80 pounds of chain on my body. The captain then told the carpenter to partition off a portion of the lazarette for my reception. This was beneath the cabin, and there was a passage in the tween decks on each side of the cabin about four feet wide and four feet deep. One end was nailed up, and I was dragged up and thrown down the hatch into the lazarette. The captain then ordered the other end to be boarded up. I was then in a space four feet by four feet and five feet long. I am five foot ten inches in height, so I had not too much room in which to lie down. I could not reach my mouth with my hands on account of the chains. A hole was cut in one of the boards, and one end of the chain attached to my ankle was pulled through and made fast to a stanchion outside my box. At first my daily fare was one of ship's biscuit and a half pint of water. That did not kill me, so the same amount of biscuit and about three or four tablespoonfuls of water was tried. Still, I did not die. For the first three weeks in this box I suffered the tortures of the damned. My hunger and thirst was intolerable. I begged Captain Slocum to give me water and food, but in vain. After I had been about thirty days in the box, I heard Mrs. Slocum playing a hymn on the organ. She played, Nearer My God to Thee, and I joined in, and began to sing. Suddenly, while I was singing, the chain attached to my ankles was hauled up to the hole, bringing my feet up about three feet from the deck. I was kept in this position for over three days without food or water. At the end of that time, the captain came down fully armed to see me. He let my legs down again. I begged of him to give me some water. He laughed and said, Are you very thirsty, old man? Very well, I will give you a good drink if you promise to behave yourself. I promised I would not sing again, and he went and got me a big dipper of water. I said, God bless you, Captain Slocum, for your kindness in bringing me this water. I then began to drink and found that he had given me a dipper of seawater. I had drunk quite a quantity before I ascertained that the water was salt and naturally my thirst was increased a hundredfold. The next day, I received my usual allowance of water and biscuit. I began to find the rats troublesome about now. I would often wake up and find them running all over me, and even biting my skin. I had no flesh. I wondered why they came after me, as I was nothing but skin and bone. I soon found out. I frequently fancied about this time that I could smell butter or melted cheese, I found out later on that Captain Slocum used to pour melted butter or cheese onto what remained of my clothes to attract the rats. After I had been about forty days in the box, a large rat was running all over me, and I succeeded in catching him in my hands. 
I was in such a desperate state of hunger that I squeezed the life out of the rat and then ate it. I never, however, managed to get this change of diet again. My box was never once cleaned out for the period of 53 days during which I was confined therein, nor was I allowed to wash myself. After the first couple of weeks, I broke out into a rash and found that I was covered with vermin. The rats had almost stripped me of my clothing and were often gnawing at my legs and arms. Captain Slocum would occasionally come down, bringing with him uh, bread and meat or cakes or doughnuts, show them to me and then deliberately eat them before me. Shortly before we arrived in New York, the captain brought down some carbolic acid to disinfect my box and sprinkled some on my body and face, drops falling in my mouth and eyes. On arriving at New York, I was arrested and tried for mutiny and honourably acquitted. Captain Slocum and his two mates were then arrested and were each severely punished for their cruelty to me. The captain was fined $500 and the mates $100 each. I ask the public, before making a god of this man, to wait until I am placed face to face with him. I do not make these statements to gain notoriety or even sympathy, but simply to show my fellow citizens what kind of a man they are dealing with in Captain Joshua Slocum. After hearing Slater's side of the old grudge controversy, the paper had its Newcastle man see Slocum and advise him of Slater's charges. From that place, the reporter wired that the captain does not deny that he imprisoned Slater, but this was done, he says, only after the latter had broken out of the stateroom where he was first confined for insubordination. Captain Slocum alleges that though ironed and placed in a stateroom, Slater broke out of his place of confinement and armed himself. He also states that he, Slater, attempted to incite the crew to mutiny. Thereupon he, Captain Slocum, had him ironed and imprisoned in an apartment specially built for the purpose in the lazarette. Captain Slocum declined to make any set statement in reply to the allegations of Slater, but he placed at the disposal of your reporter a book containing a number of clippings from American papers referring to the case of the Northern Light. These included an account of an interview between the reporter of a paper called The Telegram and a sailor who served on board the Northern Light at the time Captain Slocum commanded her, and Slater held the position of third mate. This man, in his statement, contradicted Slater in his story of his imprisonment and treatment by Captain Slocum on board the Northern Light. The man in question, a sailor named Dimmock, expressed to the reporter his opinion that Slater was, although a bad man, not cruelly treated by Captain Slocum. The interview with Dimmock resulted in a number of charges being laid against Slater on the score of competency and conduct, generally as a ship's officer. Clippings from other American papers go to support the captain's contention that Slater, and not he, was in fault in the trouble that took place on board the Northern Light. Captain Slocum says that he does not fear a complete investigation of the whole affair. He readily admits that the American courts fined him $500 for his action in regard to Slater, the whole of which his underwriters paid, but he urges that the judge summed up in his favour when placing the case before the jury and expressed the belief that he, Captain Slocum, did not act with malice or with motives of revenge, but was actuated merely by a desire to maintain discipline and to bring his ship safely into port. Copious extracts from newspapers published in America at that time to a large extent support Captain Slocum's statements. The Daily Telegraph, determined to be fair and even generous to Slocum, also published alleged affidavit by Slater, copied by their reporter from the captain's scrapbook of clippings. 
The affidavit is the one made 12th of January 1884, in which Slater blamed the harshness of his treatment on the chief mate of the Northern Light rather than the captain. While the newspapers fanned up more heat than light from the ashes of the past, Slocum was ready to push on to Sydney. As a navigator should, he had shaped and reshaped his course in accordance with winds and currents and seasons. He had tried to steer clear of pirates. At no time, however, did he make a major change in his plans in order to avoid threats of trouble. He did not fear discomfort, nor did he ever lack faith in his ability to handle any situation. His sensitivities did not go outward, but inward, and even while circling the globe, he remained in a personal world. Slocum, the solitary Yankee, made no attempt to fathom the run of men. He felt apart from them. His feeling was reinforced and sanctioned by the etiquette and traditions of the merchant service, by which a captain was elevated to a lonely and impregnable position. Captain Slocum lived by this now antiquated code. Alone on the spray, he still adhered to it. Though his command was rather reduced, he was still the captain. No one was going to get to windward of him. Nothing was going to deter him from bringing his ship into port. And so the very next day, after hearing of Slater's charges, the captain set sail for the capital of New South Wales. Well, that's all for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly. And remember, of course, you've got all the content over on YouTube and the Mariner podcast. And of course, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you're safe and sound and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.